Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, President Biden delivered his first State of the Union address last night to a tired and anxious nation, worried about the effects of inflation and climate change, exhausted by a pandemic in its third year, and trying to make sense of an altered geopolitical landscape since Russia invaded Ukraine. Biden's message, We're going to be okay. This hour, with a panel of reporters, we'll look at what Biden said he'll do in his speech to address the most important issues facing the country and hear what matters most to you. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In his first State of the Union address, President Biden tried to highlight signs of an ebbing pandemic to tame inflation worries and renew calls for expanded child care, elder care, and reinvestments in infrastructure. But the first half of Biden's speech was all about strengthening the nation's resolve to check Russian aggression, wasting no time going after Vladimir Putin for attacking a sovereign democratic nation. He badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. For more on the president's speech, we're joined by Missy Ryan, diplomacy and national security reporter for The Washington Post. Missy Ryan, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Also with us is Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. Hi, Melanie. Thanks for being here as well. Happy to be here. So let me start with you, Melanie. How would you grade the president's speech last night? There was a lot he needed to do. There was a lot he needed to do. And one of the things that struck me is how different this speech probably looked like in drafts just a week ago. And as you mentioned, the first half was all about this conflict that I don't think any of us anticipated would be the subject of the State of the Union. So I think if we're talking about, you know, being able to turn around the focus real quickly, I think that we should give him pretty high marks for that. But I do think that it is difficult to really uh, hit a home with these State of the Union addresses. You just have to hit a lot of points and somehow not make it sound like a laundry list. And while I think that he was able to be pretty stirring and compelling talking about the Ukraine-Russia conflict, I think when he got to the domestic policy issues, it did sort of get to be a little listy, which I think is just uh, sort of Mm. the perils of these types of addresses. That's funny. That was the word I just used when talking with uh, my producers about the, the, the domestic agenda side of his speech. But 
But you're right. It is very interesting to have the first half of your State of the Union address be about a war far away. And it was also striking, Missy Ryan, to see that this is one of the few times that President Biden was able to draw uh, a standing ovation that was bipartisan. What did you make of that? Yeah, it really was a highlight and a sort of emotional moment during his State of the Union last night when he was honoring the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova, who was there and uh, he addressed her. She was a guest. And then Jill Biden hugged her. And you really had this very strong response across the aisle in support of Ukraine. And that that really, I think, reflects the current moment. And there's certain elements of the American approach to Ukraine and um, what people see as American interests that do span both parties. But there are also limitations to that. So we saw a little bit of that in other elements of the speech and the Republican response to what Biden said. There's some criticism that President Biden hasn't done enough or hasn't acted as quickly to confront uh, President Putin. But it was interesting that he led the speech and had such a long segment on Ukraine. It really was a chance for him to tout what he sees as um, a manifestation of the success of their foreign policy approach, which is emphasizing the strength of alliances, the potential that close collaboration with other countries can have and what that can yield, and also a chance to talk about American and and Western values of democracy and standing up against autocracy. He he cast this this situation, the standoff over Ukraine, Ukraine, obviously about the Ukrainian people and what they're going through, but also in sort of historic and moral terms. And that's something that we haven't seen Um, American leaders do in every moment, certainly in the last five years. So this is President Biden trying to rally the American people behind him to prepare them for some of the potential sacrifices they're going to have to make in terms of gas prices, but also trying to use it as something that he hopes will be emblematic of his foreign policy. Yes. I mean, Melanie, we certainly know that President Joe Biden has talked a lot about the fight for democracy against autocracy, the fight against authoritarian leaders, and so on. But he did seem like he was really in his element here as somebody who who really knows foreign relations, at least from his time as a senator. Absolutely. This is the former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee. And, and, and I think a lot about how, in some ways, the speech really returned him to the essence of what his presidential campaign was in two respects. The first was, I am somebody who knows foreign affairs. I have relationships with world leaders. And so when he's talking about these alliances that he built with Europe, with the rest of the world, it really brought me back, quite frankly, to 2019, 2020, when he was uh, speaking on the trail, uh, such such as it was with COVID, uh, about his knowledge of of world events and world leaders. And the second thing is this emphasis on bipartisanship. I mean, as Missy pointed out, the very first standing ovation was a bipartisan standing ovation uh, for the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States. And bipartisanship really was at the core of Biden's uh, that he was somebody who could bring the country together. And I think that the realities of governing uh, in America at this time has, has sort of dampened that uh, that promise. And, and so you kind of re- were able to see him steer back to the themes that I think that he feels most comfortable in. Yes, but Missy, as you did point out, he has been criticized for not doing enough. So let's talk a little bit about what Biden announced, which is that he would in fact ban Russian flights entering U.S. airspace. Can you explain the significance of this move? 
Well, this is just another element in this orchestrated effort to really isolate President Putin, to isolate the Russian economy. And I don't think it's the most significant element of what has been done so far, certainly in comparison to some of the financial measures that have been taken in terms of trying to um, reduce the Russian central bank's ability to operate and to help the domestic economy, the efforts to cut off Russian banks from the SWIFT interbank messaging system. And then, you know, you've seen this really remarkable cascade of businesses announce um, from around the world that they are stopping um, their operations and pulling out of Russia, um, in addition to, um, again, some measures that Europe is taking to, um, just like the United States, halt air travel. The air travel for Europe is probably more significant, um, but, you know, it's just this very astonishing um, in its strength and its coordination um, to see countries, um, to see what the what um, Europe and the United States have announced over the last week um, in economic and political measures, especially for Europe. You saw countries like Germany abandoning um, a long-held policy of um, uh, refraining from sending weaponry to Ukraine. Um, you have the EU announcing that they will finance the export of weapons. That has never happened before. Right. You have countries uh, like Finland um, taking similar steps. So it really is a watershed moment. Well, what Biden made clear was that the U.S. would not be sending troops to fight in Ukraine. And what NATO nations are saying that if any NATO nation is attacked, the U.S. would respond with other NATO countries as well. I want to just play a little bit of that moment in the speech when he was trying to make that very clear to the American public. But let me be clear. Our forces are not engaged and will not engage in the conflict with Russian forces in Ukraine. Our forces are not going to Europe to fight Ukraine, but to defend our NATO allies in the event that Putin decides to keep moving west. Now, NATO countries are sending weapons to Ukraine. The EU has created a weapons hub in Poland. Does this, how worried are you, I guess, about Europe and the U.S. being drawn into war as a result of this? And do you think that he effectively, he effectively communicated the stakes? He'd mentioned them, but did he effectively communicate them to the American public? Well, I mean, I think it, you know, it, it depends to a certain extent how much the American public is focused on um, foreign policy versus the pocketbook issues that he addressed later in the speech. But I do think that that it is certainly a moment to be, um, everyone should be more worried about a NATO-Russia confrontation than they were two weeks ago. But I don't think that it's something, at least in the conversations that I'm having with uh, officials from, from Europe and from Eastern Europe, especially, that uh, people are worried about in the near term. Obviously, the Russian military is busy right now in Ukraine. Um, but Anything like this, you know, uh, the, this kind of conflict and, of course, the decision by Russia to put its nuclear fo deterrent forces on a higher status of, of alert, um, it, it certainly raises the potential for miscalculation. Uh, President Biden, as you noted, is trying to draw a really clear line in talking about this financial support and the, mil and the military aid. Um, but but signal to Americans, we are not sending troops into Ukraine. And that's a very different approach than we've had in the counterinsurgent conflicts that everybody has gotten um, used to um, in the last 20 years. And so, you know, I mean, I think that um, the, the only the thing that I think we have to worry about in the near term is the extent to which this um, 
economic warfare, hmm. um, which some people I've talked to describe as um, nuclear war level economic warfare in Russia changes Putin's calculus um, and puts it into a different category for Putin. And what will that do to his decision making? We're talking with Missy Ryan, diplomacy and national security reporter for The Washington Post. Also with us is Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for The Los Angeles Times. And we're talking about President Biden's State of the Union address last night. And I'd like to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation if you want to share what struck you about President Biden's address, what what issues matter to you most? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also email us, forum at kqed.org. Michael tweets, Biden did very well for an 80-year-old man, but it's clear that being the president has taken its toll. Can he serve his full term or might he retire early? Melanie Mason, what do you think about Michael's question? Look, I think that uh, Biden's age has always been sort of a subtext to a lot of the conversation about his presidency. And certainly it was something that consistently has been seized upon by his conservative critics. Uh, I think that the, the White House consistently tamps down on any thoughts of him either not completing his term or not running for a second term. They have stated that he is running for re-election in, in 2024. Um, but I think that there is always going to be the sense, look, he's, he's an 80-year-old man. And so I think that there is always going to be a lot of focus in terms of how he's delivering these speeches and also just how visible he is. I thought that that was another reason why I think that him starting on this conversation of the Ukraine-Russia conflict uh, was strong for him because he was able to quite frankly, be very vigorous in his delivery. And I think that when there is always this sub subtext going on about him and his age, be him being able to very forcefully deliver um, a, a speech that speaks to American values, uh, I, I think uh, sort of addresses what maybe are some of the whispers going on, particularly in conservative media. There were some pundits who pointed out that he used the word Iranian when he meant to say Ukrainian. Do you think that was fair? <laughs> I think that look all fair seconds. when you're the president of the United States <laughs> and you're giving and you're giving an address, but also I mean you give you try to give an hour long speech and not have some uh, gaffes every once in a while. We'll talk more about that hour long speech after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're analyzing President Biden's first State of the Union address he delivered last night before a joint session of Congress. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation if you want to share what struck you about President Biden's address, what issues you were glad to see him address, and what issues actually that you thought 
were missing from Biden's speech that you wished he would have addressed. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. And as always, you can email us, forum at kqed.org. We're talking with Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, and Missy Ryan, diplomacy and national security reporter for the Washington Post. And I want to play a little bit of the Republican response um, to the State of the Union address. This was delivered by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. When runaway inflation was hammering families, a violent crime wave was crashing our cities, and the Soviet army was trying to redraw the world map. Even before taking the oath of office, the president told us that he wanted to, quote, make America respected around the world again, and to unite us here at home. He's failed on both fronts. Missy Ryan, did you listen to the rebuttal? And and curious to get your overall impression of how effective it was. Well, I think that the message from the Republicans on the foreign policy side was really whether Biden has done enough to deter um, President Putin and um, whether he should have moved faster. And I think that, you know, you can have a debate about that, but the approach that they took was to withhold the major economic sanctions um, until Putin actually went in. I think that was in part because there were a lot of reservations from European partners, which obviously have a lot uh, deeper economic relationships with Russia and obviously their reliance on Russia for energy supplies. So, you know, I, I, I think you could make um, a, a strong argument that Putin may not have been deterred, um, even if they had unveiled these sanctions earlier, because he anticipated them. He knew what was coming. He may have been surprised by the extent that other countries joined in, um, countries like Japan um, or countries from Oceania. But, um, but I, I, you know, there, there is there is criticism in that aspect. Um, of Biden's speech and and obviously um, some ongoing criticism of his other elements of his foreign policy, um, including the withdrawal um, from Afghanistan last year. And that was not mentioned in um, Biden's speech, which I thought was 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 notable. Yes. I wanted to ask you what you thought about that in the Republicans response. Uh, Governor Reynolds also basically attacked the, quote, disastrous Afghanistan withdrawal Will Afghanistan be an issue that haunts Biden, or do you think the American public has moved on at this point? I do think it will be an issue that haunts Biden because the there is an ongoing humanitarian and social catastrophe in Afghanistan, and that really is a legacy that certainly wasn't the product of you know the first eight months that he was in office, but is the product of the overall American project there over twenty years. Um, but it will be attached most directly to him because it happened while he was president. You know, I thought that the way that he talked about um, the diplomacy that they had done, the partnerships um, on Ukraine was a way to rebut what was the criticism in Afghanistan um, because it didn't happen that way. So, you know, they're trying to, I think, preempt um, criticism about Afghanistan. Do you think he is getting enough credit for the work he did in pulling that coalition of support together, Missy Ryan? I do. I mean, I've heard from European countries I've been speaking with in recent days that they do appreciate that role. Certainly it wasn't all about um, the the American effort wasn't the only thing that made that happen. I think it was the sheer um, appallingness of what Putin was trying to do, Um, but it certainly helped in having this united front 
Um, and, you know, I think only history will judge um, of Biden's foreign policy. How do you balance that against what um, is continuing to happen in Afghanistan? Um, it will depend a lot on, on how things go in Ukraine in the coming months and years. Well, we've got calls coming in. Let me go to Thomas in New Mexico. Hi, Thomas. Hello. Hi, what's on your can mind? Can you hear me? Yeah, we can. Yeah, there, there, are two, there are two issues. The first has to do with inflation that uh, Biden is being pummeled by, whereas inflation is a worldwide problem. And the inflation rates all around the world have increased dramatically. And it's nothing that Biden can do by himself. It's, uh, it's an issue that has to be, uh, be uh, attacked by, by you know, all around the world. And I don't know why this isn't being brought up, that it's not an American problem, it's a world problem. Mm. And the other issue is Afghanistan. When um, Trump excluded the, the uh, Afghan government from his negotiations with the Taliban, he basically set up Biden for failure. And I don't know why that's not being pointed out as well. Well, well, Thomas, thanks. And Melanie Mason, on the issue of inflation, I, I think even your paper and its polling found that this is the number one issue on on people's minds. And Thomas is pointing out the relatively limited power that, that Biden likely has with regard to addressing inflation. But can you talk about what he did say he would do and whether or not you feel like he was addressing that public anxiety effectively? Yes, I think it's a great point. And I think that what we saw in the section of the speech that didn't address inflation is we saw the president trying to create a narrative of how to explain this inflation and, and how to address it. And I think that uh, to Thomas's point, this is a global phenomenon. In fact, we heard a lot about that in terms of the global supply chain and these domino effects that we are seeing because of what the effect COVID had on the economy. And so he used that opportunity to pivot to a somewhat um, uh, you know, pro-American, buy American, produce in America, manufacture in America message. And I think that that was also countering what I think is the conservative narrative of what is driving this inflation, and that would be, you know, runaway government spending. He is pinning the blame specifically on the effect that COVID had on the economy worldwide, and then he is proposing a very um, uh, nationalistic, in some sense, uh, response to it. And I think that that is a way to maybe wrest this conversation away from the question of, is inflation being caused by social spending programs such as COVID aid um, that is being here in the United States? I think the question is, is does that conversation continue? I think that we've seen him try to reorient the conversation, but that's going to take some repetition in order for uh, the American populace to, to really absorb it. Well, Sandra writes, I am at a loss to understand the constant references to our president as weak or old or inept. Why is no one referencing the direction that our last president and his Republican administration was taking? President Trump raised, praised Putin, attacked NATO, and did his best to undermine any and all attempts to face climate change. Our last president encouraged a domestic attack on democracy and continues to praise Putin. We are blessed to have a strong, responsible adult in the White House. And Mike writes, would appreciate your guest thoughts on what I consider to be persistent and unfair biases against President Biden in general, primarily from the right. I view the majority of their criticism to be not based on substance, but instead on blatant ageism and cruelty toward an older person who daily is overcoming a lifelong speech impediment. I mean, the fact that both of these listeners uh, are are noting this, Melanie, Melanie Mason, makes me wonder just how effective the right has been in terms of constantly trying to add, inject into the conversation questions about Biden's mental fitness. Yeah, I think that there is in some ways we're seeing, there's been a, an 
a direction of political rhetoric, I think, overall, and I think that last night was a, was a perfect opportunity to watch this, where it's almost a um, sort of Twitter trolling type of political responses. There's always been rapid response from the opposing political parties, been, um, you know, some uh, a lot of either substantive or sometimes style critiques. But I think that what we are starting to see more and more is this kind of, um, you know, what is what would be the criticisms that would go viral necessarily? And and one of the moments that stood out for me for that, that's kind of almost just like trolling type of uh, response, uh, didn't have to do with his age, but was at the moment when he was speaking about veterans and burn pits and was about to reference um, his son, Bo, uh, who died of cancer. And he has often connected that death um, to his son served in the military and, and burn pits. Um, and you had a member of Congress, I believe it was Congressman Lauren Boebert, um, shout out, and she was trying to, to essentially heckle him about the service members that were lost in Afghanistan during the withdrawal. And it the, the moment just completely fell flat in the sense that he was just about to, to reference his, his deceased son. And it just seems like there is this um, kind of uh, Twitter viral nastiness edge now to, to um, uh criticisms of the president. And I think that the question is, is, is how does that play? I mean, it plays really well, quite frankly, on social media, where I think that the conversation does sort of favor um, super snarky, uh, super rude. But I think that the question is, does the public at large like that sort of tone of their politics? Well, and Missy Ryan, that may be one of the angles, especially that they're trying to hit with regard to gaining some leverage in, in midterms in terms of the perception of President Biden. But as we said at the very beginning, what we are seeing is an event in the world that is bringing Republicans and Democrats together. And I guess what I'm curious about is where you think that goes with regard to uh, a unified response with regard to our foreign policy and the the, the divisions between the two parties. Yeah, well, I think we're going to see the Biden administration use the tools that it has in its executive authority to continue to support weapons shipments and humanitarian aid um, the, it, from, you know, the money that they already have. And they're, you know, in, um, in Congress, there is strong support for this. So I don't see real concern about that continuing. I think that, you know, maybe there will be potential in the midterms for criticism of Putin, of uh, Biden, excuse me, for not being strong enough, standing up to Putin. But, you know, in some ways, as, as um, one of the callers, um, uh, listeners, noted it's it, it is a, a bit of a hard um argument for republicans to make given um president trump's position vis-a-vis -vis, um putin and everything that he said and didn't say about putin um including in the last week so um you know it's going to be an issue um that I'm, I'm sure will be raised but i frankly think that in terms of foreign policy um, critiques that can be made as part of um, the domestic um, political debate and the midterms that are coming up, it's it's a far less stronger um, one than Afghanistan. Let me go to Brian in El Tassajaro. Hi, Brian. Hi, how are you? Well, what's on your mind? Well, so I didn't get to listen to the whole speech last night, but I don't think I heard China mentioned at all. And, you know, up until this uh, crisis in Ukraine, you know, China was our big nemesis and, you know, trade negotiations and things. And I kind of haven't heard anything about what China's doing with regard to the Ukraine. You know, are they an ally of Russia in this? Are they um, doing any sanctions? Are they, uh, you know, just I'm wondering what is China's role in this kind of big conflict that's going on? 
A lot of people are wondering that. Miss you, Ryan. What are your thoughts for Brian? So he did mention China briefly a couple of times. Um, I think the message was that the U.S. economy, um, he, he's going to try to make sure that the U.S. economy continues to perform against China, um, which obviously is a big challenge. Um, the United States, one of the reasons why uh, Biden and his advisors are um, frankly so, um, I think, energized by this current moment is that you've seen um, Europe really um, take more ownership of um, its defense and the need to invest more in its defense than you have for a long time. You have countries like Germany saying that they're going to commit more than 2% of their GDPs um, to to their defense. And to the extent that actually materializes and is sustained over time will enable the United States to execute on these changes that it's been wanting to make for, for a really long time in shifting its focus militarily um, and to some extent diplomatically towards Asia focused on China. So, you know, I mean, that that could be a um, silver lining of the current crisis and the, you know, when, um, of course, the appalling situation that Ukrainians are focusing. Um, but it, it has the potential to really alter the security um, conversation in Europe for a long time. Let me go next to Mike and Campbell. Hi, Mike. Hey there. Hey, I really appreciate, as always, the uh, intelligent conversation and um, discussion around these topics. Um, just uh, wanted to go back to, to something that someone said about kind of Trump and you know his his comments about how Putin was operating. And I was curious to know, you know, and maybe this is sort of a statement or a question to you guys. Like, it seems to me that that you know maybe you know we're all sitting around the dinner table talking about, gosh, what would this have been like if if Trump was in office? And I'm curious to know what you guys think on why, um, you know, why Biden wouldn't, you know, do some compare and contrast if Trump might actually be a future, you know, presidential competitor in 2024. Mm. So, Melanie Mason, I'll start with you on that in terms of just how effective it could be as a political strategy to really point out the differences between him and Trump with regard to NATO, for example, and and what it would have been like if Trump were in charge at this moment, given his praise of Putin? Yeah, I think that there's two points to that. I think the first is if you're thinking from the White House's perspective, you know, there has been a lot of um, attempts to, uh, I, I think, rope in uh, some Republican support. I'm thinking particularly of somebody like Senator Mitt Romney, who has praised how the administration has been handling this so far. The fact that they are seeking a show of bipartisan support, uh, not quite frankly, not just for domestic politics, but for international politics. If America appeared to be divided politically at home. I think that that is something that uh, Vladimir Putin obviously would, would be paying very close attention to. So I think that by bringing up Trump as a you know counterfactual, I think that that is perhaps a way to just sort of uh, nudge the partisan instincts. And I think that this is a time in which the White House really wants to try to present as united front as possible. And I think that I think the second thing is more broadly, I think that the Democratic Party right now is sort of divided in this sense of how much do they bring up uh, former President Trump as a as a foe, particularly as we go into these midterms. And we've seen a real contrast between, say, how uh, Governor Gavin Newsom in his recall election last year really hit um, the sort of uh, anti-Trump angle very, very hard um, and obviously succeeded and did quite well. But then you saw uh, Governor Terry McAuliffe in Virginia um, or former Governor Terry McAuliffe lose the governor's race. Um, and in part, the criticism was is that he focused too much on Trump and that that was not necessarily a conversation that particularly um, independent voters uh, wanted to have, because I think that people are, are want 
to address what's going on in their lives currently. So I don't think the Democrats have really solved this question. I think that there's still a very robust conversation going on about how much do you elevate uh, the former president as a foil when at the same time there are voters saying, I don't want to have this 2024 back and forth. I'm concerned about what's going on uh, in, in the economy and in the world right now. That said, Missy Ryan, how effective do you think Trump would have been at creating a coalition or do you think that it mattered given the gravity of the events? Who was president? It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine the counterfactual here because there's so many different um, things uh, that the the situation would be so different in in many different ways. But certainly the things that um, we can be sure about uh, would be that Putin really did have this objective vis-a-vis Ukraine and has had it for many years now. That would have been the case. Whether or not he launched the operation that he did, um, if Trump had been reelected, we just can't say. I do feel confident that it would have been harder to build this international coalition um, just because, you know, Trump uh, questioned the validity validity of NATO. Trump called the EU a foe. Trump picked fights with Germany, granted with the previous chancellor, Angela Merkel. But, you, you know, despite the fact that you could imagine that a, a national a secretary of state under um, a second Trump um, presidency and his defense se- secretary would have gone about and tried to do their things, just having a leader who has that attitude and, and has been very clear, um, uh, a very clear skeptic of multilateralism and an American engagement with the world, it certainly would have been um, difficult much more difficult. Well, Missy Ryan, I know you need to leave us. So appreciate having you on for your analysis. Thank you. Missy Ryan is diplomacy and national security reporter for the Washington Post. Melanie Mason is with us, national political correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. And in a few moments, we'll be joined by Missy Ryan's colleague, Eugene Scott, a national politics reporter for the Washington Post. We're talking about President Biden's State of the Union address last night, and we're asking you, our listeners, to share your impressions of it and also your questions about how the president will address the pressing issues moving forward. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. 866-733-6786. You can also post those comments on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, and you can email us, forum at kqed.org. More for him after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're evaluating President Biden's State of the Union address. And last night, Ukraine brought bipartisanship into the chamber. 
President Biden was hoping that a discussion on COVID would as well. Here he is talking about the divisions about COVID in the U.S. So stop looking at COVID as a partisan dividing line. See it for what it is, a god-awful disease. Let's stop sending each, seeing each other as enemies and start seeing each other for who we are, fellow Americans. We're talking about that speech with Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. Also, Eugene Scott is with us now, a national politics reporter for The Washington Post. Hi, Eugene Scott. Thank you for having me. And with all Glad to have Scott- you on as well. And would love to get your reaction to that clip that was played with regard to COVID by President Biden, his comments about trying to come together and finally tackle COVID. I'm struck by the fact that I'm 40 minutes into this program and I'm just bringing up COVID now. And in many ways, it's kind of like the way that COVID felt in the speech, almost like uh, it was not that it wasn't the most pressing issue, but it was something that the Democrats want to say is an issue that uh, its acute nature is finally waning. Well, you know, it it is if you talk to leaders in the Biden administration and and many medical experts. And uh, that's good news uh, for many who were looking at Biden uh, to make some progress on this very real crisis for so many people. You know, I think uh, the president leaned so heavily into the power and value of unity because, uh, as you noted previously in the show, that's what he campaigned on. And so many people voted for Biden. Uh, in 2020 because of their disappointment and frustration with the breadth of division that existed in this country uh, heading into the 2020 election. And uh, they wanted him to fix that because he said he could and they believed him. Uh, We saw with various polls very recently that America is not as united uh, as Biden perhaps tried to convince people it could be under his leadership. And so he was calling on Americans to Uh, move forward using their own agency and not depending perhaps on him and other elected leaders so much to fix this very real problem. Melanie Mason, Biden delivered that speech, tried to project this sense of normalcy. There was a largely maskless audience for the State of the Union address. But there are a lot of risks, right? Do you think that the White House is being smart here? You know, he tried to to glance at those risks. He talked about the possibility of a new variant coming, but then very quickly sort of promised, you know, we'll be ready for that too. We'll be able, if needed, to to roll out a, uh, a new vaccine if that's required for a new variant. But I think that what we've seen over the last year is sort of the, the political risk of declaring victory over this virus, which has proven to be extremely unpredictable. I mean, if we recall, it was around uh, 4th of July last year uh, when President Biden basically said, uh, you know, we're back to normal and, we, you know, go see your family and have barbecues and, and sort of celebrate uh, once again. And sure enough, what happened? We had the Delta variant and then we had Omicron. And I think that there is always the sense that that the unpredictability of this crisis, I think that what we tried to see from the Biden administration when they rolled out these new initiatives such as test to treatment, where they're talking about more uh, looking at treatment as as our way to manage uh, this new reality, as opposed to some of the preventative um, uh, emphasis, such as uh, emphasis on quarantines, for example, or on masking, uh, that might show this sort of shift that could be uh, in place regardless of what new variant comes up. But Look, I think it's very hard for anybody to make definitive statements about the course of this pandemic because it's already proven to be so unpredictable. Well, let me go to caller Art in Santa Rosa. Hi, Art. 
Yes, hi, thank you. Make it real short. Um, I tuned in rather late to the address. However, I don't um, know if he even addressed climate change. <laughs> I think not. And I think that would have been important. Um, I would love to him. I'd love for him to have said at the end of the speech, hey, everybody, drive at 55. We're going way too fast and we're wasting resources. And that's all I got to say. And thank you. Uh, Art, thank you. William also writes, why was climate change left out? And what action is the president proposing to replace the $55 billion earmarked for climate and build back better? Uh, I guess in in many ways, the word glance is probably the best way to put it, Eugene Scott. I feel like he glanced at climate change. He did mention it. Do you want to talk a little bit about how in at least these lister minds, he didn't really go very far on it at all? Well, he did, and in part, I believe, because he's focused right now on maintaining some of the support, uh, or should I say winning back some of the support that he lost. And some of that appears to be from people who are a bit more conservative uh, than the base of the Democratic Party, which is the part of the electorate that seems most passionate and prioritized when it comes to climate change. And so it's not an issue that doesn't matter to the president, but when you're heading into a midterm and when you have the numbers and support that he does, I think you have to figure out what is it that you should prioritize and lean in on uh, to win back support and keep the support that you have? And I don't know that climate change ranks up there as a top issue for him. Mm. What do you think, Melanie Mason? Melanie? I was struck. Wa- yes, I'm here. I'm, I was struck watching it. Uh, it's really how different I think national politicians talk about climate change compared to politicians here in California. So when he did talk about climate change, it sort of was in the context of jobs, talking about manufacturing electric vehicles, for example, uh, here in the United States, and and sort of touting what would be the economic benefits to reorienting the country to to address climate change. Whereas I think that when I think of, for example, former Governor Jerry Brown or even Governor Gavin Newsom here, I mean, would they talk about climate change, they are talking directly about the issue and quite frankly, sort of the negative repercussions we are seeing because of a changing climate, whether it is the wildfires that we're seeing here in the state, historic drought. Uh, And so I think that in some ways, perhaps there was a missed opportunity to connect the dots on this national level um, that we often do in California. But I think uh, to Eugene's point, you know, climate change is consistently um, said by voters as something that they are concerned about. But then when they are asked and polled the issues that they care about, climate change is way down the list behind things like jobs uh, and COVID and education, crime. And so I think that when he did talk about it, it was in the context of the economy. And that's because he's looking at what voters really have at the forefront of their minds at this moment. I want to play a moment in the speech that got Bipartisan support. And this was the moment when President Biden was talking about the police and funding the police. Let me let's hear that now. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. Fund them. Fund them. Fund them with resources and training. Resources and training they need to protect our communities. There were some on the left flank of the Democratic Party that were disappointed in what Biden had to say around climate change or how little he had to address it. I'm curious, Eugene Scott, what you think about how the left wing of his party will react to that moment. Well, they certainly won't be excited uh, to hear that because, as we know, some of the more liberal 
members of the Democratic Party have been very vocal in their support, not just for police reform, but for defund the police. But I think it's important to remember that a large percentage, perhaps most, of the Democrats that are in Congress are not on the far left side of the party. They are moderates or closer to it than not. And despite whatever progress Biden may have made uh, in the past year or two, embracing some more progressive ideas uh, regarding policing, his roots are far more traditional on this issue and lean towards being far more sympathetic and supportive of law enforcement than those left of him would like. So that wasn't that big of a surprise. But I think it's also worth noting that even some of the more um, liberal Americans who are more empathetic when it comes to the issues that uh, people like AOC, uh, maybe Jamal Brown put forward, a lot of Americans are really uncomfortable with rising crime rates across cities and are looking for solutions to that and aren't quite sure that removing more funding from police is the best answer. Melanie Mason, what do you think about what he was trying to do in that moment? You know, I think in some ways, I've seen some people call this a pivot, but first of all, to Eugene's point, I think that generally he has been someone who has been uh, aligned with law enforcement for some time, and specifically when it comes to this conversation around defunding the police. I mean, we heard from then-candidate Biden back in 2020, um, almost in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder and the protests, he was not calling for defund the police. In fact, he was calling for increased funding for community policing. Uh, The question is, is, you know, was that message uh, heard? By the by, the general public, or was I think there were a lot of conversation about what the activists were, were looking for, and maybe some of the progressives in the party. So there's been a consistency that the president has shown. But I think that what he had the ability to do in this now prime time address is maybe restate those principles. And I think that because of the national conversation around uh, public safety right now. And in particular, I think the models that we've seen from some other Democrats, particularly mayors like Mayor London Breed in San Francisco and Mayor Eric Adams in New York City, where you are seeing uh, Democrats saying, yes, we care very much about uh, things like accountability, but we also want to increase funding for police because of street crimes and concerns that our residents have. It creates the space for Biden and the party as a whole to thread that needle, to say that they're not abandoning promises of criminal justice reform. He did talk about accountability measures, but not make it sound like they are giving free pra- free, uh, free pass to, to criminals, because obviously that would then open up attacks by the Republicans to say Democrats are soft on crime. We're talking with Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, Eugene Scott, national politics reporter for The Washington Post. Earlier, we spoke with Missy Ryan, diplomacy and national security reporter for The Washington Post. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me give a few more audience responses here. This listener tweets, the dog did not get a walk because I had to watch this live. It was one of his best speeches. And if Biden's domestic agenda portion of his speech sounded listy, it's because there is a long list of things to clean up after the former president's term. As some mentioned, he didn't mention January 6th. I think he's staying out of it because it's under investigation. Bennett writes, I thought Biden gave a strong speech with a number of good ideas for hitting inflation, such as lowering the price of prescription drugs. The Republicans in their counter to his speech blasted the Democrats about everything. However, they offered no ideas on how to fight inflation, what to do differently about Ukraine and sanctions, or most of the other issues raised by Biden. At least both parties agree that the U.S. is strong right now. Why won't the Republicans come up with a platform instead of simply disagreeing with everything the Democrats wish to do? 
And this listener writes on Twitter, it was consoling and inspiring, a steady hand, a statesman after years of an unhinged, seditious traitor. Wow, Eugene Scott, from our audience, we're hearing a lot of praise of Biden. How do you... How do you reconcile that with the fact that he, I believe, going into this or going into his second year has one of the lowest approval ratings of uh, any modern president? And even in California, where recently, I believe, 72 percent or so of California Democrats, they supported Biden. He's dropped by 14 points in the last six months from previous polling. Well, I was uh, reflecting on some analysis this morning about the speech and uh, someone who does polls for a media organization, I can't remember right now, was saying that approval ratings for State of the Union speeches tend to be pretty high in part because they are usually watched by people who are already part of the president's base. So it doesn't surprise me that people who are already pro-Biden tuned in and liked what they saw and, and feel more positively about it than people who really aren't paying that much attention to the president day in and day out and aren't giving him the best approval ratings. But beyond last night, I think what Biden is going to have to focus on is how does he win over those people who have checked out in part because they don't approve of what he has or has not done and who are willing to give him or at least his party another chance this November to figure out how they can move forward with completing the agenda that made Biden successful in 2020. Do you think he's also just being affected by a real exhaustion in the country, a a real wariness, a real, um, a real sense of, of things have been hard and we're feeling the effects and we're not feeling very happy right now, (laughs) Eugene Scott. I mean, that's certainly the case. You know, a lot of things are very difficult right now. And unfortunately, last week, war made them even more so. But I'm always fascinated by what people think the president can and cannot do about Mm -hmm. so many of these issues. And, you know, unfortunately, one of the reasons people seem to believe that presidents have more power than they actually do is because when they're campaigning for the presidency, they're constantly saying and claiming that they have more power than they do. But a lot of times these frustrations and disappointments that voters have are a bit misplaced, but Biden's gonna have to figure out a way to address those if he wants to remain in power or at least have his party do so. Let me go to Carrie in Sonoma County. Hi, Carrie, thanks for calling. Hi, I'm I'm just wondering as far as experts could adjust the accuracy and validity of the polls, because, um, you know, I've read that the polls are mostly calling people's landlines, and most young people do not have landlines, and many other people can't afford landlines. So are we getting, you know, a misrepresentation of what the American people believe? Hmm. Because honestly, I can't believe he's really that low in the polls. Um, because he's been doing a lot of good things. (laughs) Carrie, thanks. Melanie Mason? 
I think that's a great question. And look, I think that after the last two consecutive presidential elections, there's been a lot of um, soul searching going on in the polling industry. I think when it comes to um, updating some of their techniques, when it comes to reaching out to more people on cell phones, for example, there's been a lot of advances on um, in online polling. Uh, I do think that they are trying to account for reaching the right people. But there's always this question of what what's called sort of partisan non-response. What we saw particularly in, I think, 2020, is that it seemed to be Trump supporters were not responding to polls. And so we were sort of, it, the polls were not capturing to the fullest extent uh, where what Trump's support was. It's possible now that Democrats, um, as as you said, Mina, might be feeling a little tired, might quite frankly be feeling a little bit disappointed that some of the campaign promises uh, that President Biden had made are not being fulfilled. And maybe they don't really feel like responding to these pollsters right now. Uh, so I think that perhaps maybe we're seeing a little bit of malaise when it comes to uh, Democrats not necessarily wanting to um, speak to pollsters at this very moment. But I think generally the polling industry is quite frankly really trying to address what has been some pretty glaring issues in polling as of late. And I think that because we're seeing so much alignment in poll after poll after poll about this dissatisfaction, I think that it is capturing some element of truth of what the national mood is. So tell me in the last minute that we have, so we have about 20 seconds, Melanie, for you, what you think he needs to do now if he does get a little bump from this speech? I think it's follow through. I think that he had the opportunity to make his points to reorient the conversation. And now he has to continue to reinforce this new narrative that he's trying to uh, to put forward. What do you think, Eugene Scott? Well, I mean, I think what will have to happen moving forward right now more than anything else uh, is the White House will try to figure out how to get more support for their administration among an electorate that's really frustrated with the way things are going and who are hoping that there'll be more solutions than problems during the second part of this year. Is there one thing that you wished he would have addressed in the speech that you think would have made it really effective, Eugene, that you thought you were surprised that was missing? I don't know that I was surprised, but I uh, would have liked to have heard more about uh, student debt cancellation. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, going back to our points on climate change, uh, it, student debt, believe it or not, to a lot of people who are begging for it, does not pull as high of a priority for the American electorate as they would hope. Well, Eugene Scott, really appreciate you jumping on. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Eugene Scott, national politics reporter for The Washington Post. Melanie Mason, also glad to have you on, too. Thanks so much. Thank you. National political correspondent for The Los Angeles Times. Grace One and Susie Britton produced today's segment. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing your insights, listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.